0: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is recommending that all Americans wear face masks in public. Starting Friday, everyone in L.A. will be required to put on a mask before they go into a grocery store or other essential business. But these moves mark a shift. For months, public health officials said face masks do little to protect healthy people from COVID-19 and that the masks should be saved for sick people and health care workers. Here to answer questions about masks from us and from you is Dr. Raul Carre. He's founder and CEO of Innovative Express Care. That's an urgent care facility on the north side. Dr. Carey, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. So how do face masks protect people from COVID-19? Let's just start with the basics. As we have learned, um, five days before we start having symptoms
1: of COVID-19, we're asymptomatic, but we are spreading the virus. So The face mask is really intended to make sure when we don't know we have the virus is to make sure we decrease the amount of load that um, they're spewing out when they go out into public. So a face mask will protect if it's done by everyone will protect other people. Um, And that's the importance of the face mask.
0: Well, as we mentioned earlier, the CDC now recommends that everyone use cloth face coverings in public. What kind of mask should we be wearing?
1: Honestly, it just anything cloth that's over the, the nose and, and the mouth will decrease the spread of particles from your mouth. So it, it could be an old t-shirt, uh, it can be a bandana, a handkerchief, like whatever you can do to put over your nose and your mouth uh, will work.
0: And is there, if you you know have some materials at home, we know a lot of people are, are making homemade masks. Are there any additional things you can add to a homemade mask that might make it a little more effective?
1: no because the whole idea is it's i would never tell my healthcare workers in the emergency department to to use these things this is for people for that are going outside when they need to uh, only when they're going to buy groceries or uh, or things at target or costco but uh, those are the people this is for. So really doing a couple layers of fabric, cotton is fine, um, or or quilting fabric, um, t-shirt fabric would work. Putting a couple of those and uh, putting it over the nose and mouth, that's really all you need to decrease the spread when you're out doing essential things.
0: Well, we've been getting a lot of questions from listeners about masks, and this is a voicemail question from Mary Beth in Caneville. Let's listen. Many of my friends are making masks and sewing them at home. Are those actually useful to medical providers, or could they be used by retail people in grocery stores? Your thoughts, Doctor?
1: I think these are great for people who are in the essential workforce. So construction workers, grocery store workers, post office workers, I mean, these are wonderful and they will will help. In the hospital, uh, we would like, especially emergency physicians and anesthesiologists, and those, um, and even um, people who are uh, registering patients, those um, we should have level one or level three surgical masks, which are at a high level of decreasing particles. These are not N95 masks, those are to be used on patients uh, with physicians who are taking care of patients with suspected or already known COVID 19 viruses. So the three levels of masks are. N95 for those taking care of the patients with COVID. The surgical masks, for us working in the hospital, have a higher risk of, of encountering people with COVID. And then just cloth masks for those who are out and about, who are just doing their general essential things that they do to live. So those are what I would say are the um, three types of masks being used.
0: I want to play a voicemail from Christine in Oak Park. She volunteers with a group called Chicago Mask Makers, and they've donated more than 2,000 masks for health care workers um, caring directly for COVID-19 patients. Let's listen.
2: We are sewing masks right now to supply nurses, doctors, and respiratory therapists who are treating COVID-19 patients in our area hospitals and health care centers. Our fabric masks are not a replacement for the N95s and surgical masks, but intended to be worn over the hospital issued masks to extend the life of those masks while awaiting shipments of PPEs. So who is sewing? Who is sourcing the materials that we construct the masks from? We are volunteers and neighbors from all over the Chicago metro metro area. And we would love for you to join us. Our website, chicagomaskmakers.org, has information on how to get involved. Our tutorials, material lists, and tips are available for free for everyone. To date, we have donated over 2,000 fabric masks
0: and have requests for many thousands more. That was Christine in Oak Park with the group Chicago Mask Makers, Dr. Curry. She talked about extending the life of of the of the masks um, medical professionals are wearing by creating this extra level of um, protection, I suppose. Uh, Can you make some comment on that?
1: Yes. That's the other way to use these these cloth masks is, is to place them over N95s or over surgical masks so that Um, you can reuse these. Unfortunately, in the hospitals uh, and even in clinics, we are having to reuse N95 masks. Um, We hold them for a week. We put them in paper bags, um, believe it or not, with our names on it, and we use it for a week. Um, We put the date on it and we throw them away after a week. But we have to conserve these because we don't have enough. So um, to do so, we need to put a mask over, actually over these N95 masks um, to protect them from getting soiled. So these uh, cloth masks are perfect ways of doing this and are very much helping us. And I know in my hospital, as well as others, I see people with these cloth masks um, putting over the N95 and over surgical masks to extend their use, which is really great to see.
0: Well, if you're interested in getting involved with Chicago mask makers, we will tweet out that contact information at WBEZ Reset. I want to go to another call we got from Joe in Orland Park. Let's hear him.
1: I'm a single man and I'm totally blind and I can't sew. Can I use a ski mask that I use during the winter to keep my face from being
0: frostbitten? Thank you. Dr. Coray, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, as long as that ski mask is... um... Uh, of cloth and has um, definitely um, doesn't have like little holes in it that you can get through. What we're wanting is something that fully covers the the mouth and the nose uh, without any open holes where particles can get in. So um, with looking at it, it's tough. But uh, a bandana, um, usually ski masks, but they can't have openings in them. That could work uh, depending on uh, what type it is and how uh, if they have holes in them.
0: Let's go to one more listener question from Kelly in Willowbrook, and, and she's asking about the best practices for cleaning masks. Let's listen.
1: I have a question about cloth face masks. I'm making some from
0: a pattern that I got from a local hospital and was wondering the best way to wash them, um, besides hot water and tumble dry hot, can they be sprayed with Lysol in between wearings? Would that also
2: disinfect them? What's the best recommendation on that?
0: Now, Dr. Curry, I've heard everything from putting your mask in direct sunlight for a while to, you know, washing them or spraying them down. What's what's the best practice here?
1: Right. I, I want to first say Lysol is a no-no. Lysol has a lot of other harsh chemicals, and and um, we're seeing a lot of healthcare worker. Uh, kind of uh, coughs and, and, and other irritants due to the Lysol. Thank goodness for Lysol. It cleans everything, but we want to be very careful But putting that near our nose and mouth. But um, I think she alluded to this. Hot water with soap is the best, tumble, dry, and hot. That If we can put it in the washing machine and dryer, that would be great. But if not, hot water scrubbing um, with soap uh, will work as well. That's the most important thing. And I would I would wash them daily. Um, just as things get soiled, things get dirty. um, It's important to keep um, things clean, especially something that's so close to your mouth and your
0: nose. We know we are all limiting our time out of doors. But you know, as I'm out with our dogs, I see a lot of people walking or running without a mask. What is your recommendation if you're if you're outside? Is a mask necessary?
1: No. I mean, I'm a big advocate of uh, masks for all. This is something I'm, a platform I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. However, if you're taking a run, if you're going out with, with your dog, I think it's nice to have one in your pocket because if you ever have to go inside or go in a place where you're less than six feet away from someone for, for more than five, ten seconds, I think it's important to, for us all to be masked. But when you're taking a run, walking your dog out and you're not in the general public and not close to people, then I think you're fine not wearing a mask. But anytime that you're actually talking to people or next to them within five feet and when you're there for more than five seconds, not when you're running, I think it's important to have a mask on, um, both people to have masks on. So that's really important.
0: Dr. Curry, you previously worked in the ER at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, but you also have a background in epidemiology and disaster relief. How did that prepare you to deal with this crisis?
1: Well, when I started seeing what was going on in China, then Iran, and then Italy, it became clear to me, especially when I saw Italy, um, which is an advanced uh, healthcare system. Um, um, When I saw that, I knew it was coming to the United States and we were going to be in trouble. So I started preparing, buying PPE, getting the tests, and getting ready for it, um, I think, before a lot of people saw it coming. And uh, therefore, we were able to test in our community.
0: Now, your facility, Innovative Express Care, has tested more than a 1,000 patients for COVID-19 to date. At a time when tests are hard to come by, how were you able to provide that service?
1: I um, have relationships with labs, um, and there are two labs in in, in the community, um, Quest and LabCorp. Um, and just having relationships with them prior to COVID-19, uh, I reached out to them saying, are you guys prepared to to do a large amount of tests if we give them to you. We also have, uh, through the CDC and the Illinois Department of Public Health and the Chicago Public Health Department, we have the ability to send off tests through them, and I've been very working with them closely uh, to send tests off for patients as well. So just having my relationships has really helped, but not only that, is having the PPE, because even if you had the test, if you don't have the personal protective equipment, which includes goggles, face masks, gowns that are disposable, You cannot do the test. So you need a lot of things to even do a single test. Um, And then we just ordered those, some through Amazon, some through our distributors. But we did this um, a month ago, so there wasn't any rush. There wasn't any limitations on them. And uh, we got a good amount of it, and, and we're able to test our community, which is nice.
0: Well, you've personally administered hundreds of the tests, and I think a lot of people wonder what that process is like. Can you describe it for us? Yeah,
1: it's a fairly simple um, test. If you've ever gotten a flu swab, it's the same one. So you just take a swab with some bristles on it, so it's a little uncomfortable, and we push it through your nose a long way, believe it or not, uh, a good five to six inches till we hit hit it and we just move it a little bit to get some of that mucus membrane from the back of your um nasopharynx And then we, sw- um, we mix it into some viral transport media in a test tube and uh, we cut off the bristles so we keep it in there, and then we send that to our private lab, Quest or LabCorp, um, which are private labs, and and they get the test uh, results in uh, three to five days. So it's a pretty easy process. It's not painful, a little bit uncomfortable, but nothing even like a shot or anything like that.
0: Who's eligible for testing at your facility?
1: We have opened it up to anyone with symptoms, any cough, cold, uh, anyone with fevers, and anyone who's a first uh, responder or healthcare worker who are interacting with people at high risk. We help them as well. So we have a very open testing policy.
0: And how many of your patients are testing positive at this point?
1: To this date, we've had 175 COVID-19 positive um, patients. So um, we have a 15 to 20 percent positive rate based on our numbers. Those have definitely gone up in the last few days.
0: Well, just as we wrap up here, because I think it bears repeating, last advice for people uh, about ways to best stay safe during this crisis?
1: Right. And I know you've heard it all from our, our mayor to our governor. It really is to stay sheltered. And that's really the most important thing. And it means not having your friends over, not having people over. It really is to isolate yourself. Um, and it also means that when you do go out in public, to wear a face mask, like uh, a cloth mask is is great. And that's um, not only protecting you a little bit, but more importantly, protecting everyone else. And if everyone does that, obviously, there's a lot of um, positives to that. That's about it. Washing your hands once an hour when you're out and about um, or using um, hand sanitizer. But that's all we can do for the next two to four weeks.
0: That's Dr. Raul Carre, CEO of Innovative Express Care. It's an urgent care facility on the north side. Dr. Carre, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Singer and songwriter John Prine used his years growing up in working class Maywood to weave stories that would break your heart or make you laugh out loud. Sometimes both would happen in the same song. Prine was loved by fans and revered by fellow musicians. John Prine passed away yesterday due to complications from COVID 19. He was 73. Music critic, author, and co host of WBEZ's Sound Opinions, Greg Cott, joins us now to talk about the life and work of John Prime. Greg, welcome back to Reset. Thank you, Jen. So a couple of months ago, uh, we were sitting together talking about your retirement from the Tribune after 30 years at <laughs> <of> the paper. <laughs> a lot yeah. has happened since then. If you were working there today, what would the first few lines of your remembrance about John Prime say?
3: Um, he was one of us. Uh, I, You know, I think that Prime you know, was both a serious so- singer-songwriter, one of the geniuses of the last half century, but at the same time he never acted like one. You know, I would compare him to somebody like Dylan, uh, Bob Dylan. The level of craft and genius that he brought to his writing, but Dylan was sort of unapproachable. He's he's almost this unknowable, inscrutable figure. Prine, you could always imagine yourself having a drink with him at the bar. In fact, I'd, I had a drink with John Prine at a bar once, and... Uh, It was always always like talking to an old friend. So there was a a humanity there, an empathy that always projected itself, not only in the person, but in the songs. And to me, the line between John's songs and who he was like in real life was was very thin indeed. In fact, I think they melded together more often than not.
0: So there's the lyrics and then there's the
3: music. Talk about his approach to, to the music. His music was pretty simple. You know, it was uh, folk-based, country-based. You know, his family was from the South and uh, moved to Chicago for for jobs. So he grew up as a mailman, and, uh, you know, he was in the service, the military service as well. So he was a blue-collar guy in a lot of ways uh, and grew up around blue-collar people, you know, salt-of-the-earth type people, you know, no BS type of people, Chicago people. So his songwriting was informed by that. You know, don't make it too... Too complex. Don't make it uh, higher than uh, you think your audience is. It's 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 almost like I want to relate to these people uh, in the way that I want to be related to. And uh, so his craft was deceptively simple, but in, at the same time his gift for melody and also for wordplay were were beyond, you know un- unparalleled. I think he was one of the the geniuses at putting words together in a way that uh, was extraordinary. Uh, you know there was both the mundane details of everyday life that filtered their way into the songs, and then at the same time, like he used to say, I I liked living deep down inside my head, and there was this element of surrealism in there. His gift was his ability to hold comedy and pathos together at the same time, in the same song, sometimes within the space of a couple of lines, and giving you this complete human experience in the span of like three or four verses.
0: What was a live performance with him like?
3: He essentially did the show that he did in the folk clubs of Chicago in 1969, 1970, 71, when he was first starting out. Uh, He did that show his entire life. He never thought there was any need to gussy it up or change it. I mean, he added musicians over the years. He he played with some great musicians, uh, had a a great touring band, uh, but it was still a pretty stripped-down affair. And it was basically John doing a set like he would have done at, a, at at the Old Town School of Folk Music or, you know, the Earl of Old Town. You know, he was just himself up there on stage singing his songs. And he could hold an audience wrapped for two and a half, three hours doing 40, 45 songs, uh, ranging from obscurities to, you know, classics like Sam Stone and Hello in There. And I probably attended a dozen, 15 of his shows And everyone was different. The banter between songs was different. You know, the stories he would tell to sort of set up the songs were were different. But at the same time, uh, you know, there was a a feeling of like, you're going to get a great show because the guy never phoned it in. And he was always in the moment. And his audience was in the moment with him. And that was a real gift.
0: It sounds like there was a certain intimacy there during his performances.
3: absolutely I mean he used to play in rooms I mean he told me his first audience was about 12 people you know 50 cents uh, he got 50 cents for every head they brought into the tour you know his Mm -hmm. friends got 12 people to show up you know as his career spiraled upward over the years slowly but surely cult following turns into you know major you know major mid-tier act he was never a superstar but at the same time he was able to sell out places like the Chicago theater which is like you know 3,000 plus people So that's a hell of a way to, you know, to make a living in a big audience. And at the same time, he made it seem like he was singing to a few friends in his living room. So, uh, again, that intimacy, that, you know, sense that we were in it together. uh, You know, people are throwing that around a lot in this uh, COVID pandemic. You know, we're we're in this together. John always felt like his shows were about we're in this together. It's about this community here sharing this music.
0: When you think about somebody like Bruce Springsteen, he'll take the quote-unquote regular guy and turn him into this sort of heroic mythic character in his songs but prine's characters were were quieter they were simpler but they were still so memorable talk about that element of his writing
3: well i think the key was again as you said uh, you know the characters were were down to earth and and um, they were relatable they were people like him um he was writing about what he knew what he knew was you know working class was um You know, salt of the earth people, you know, the farmers from the south, the factory workers in Chicago, the mailmen in Chicago, the, you know, the guys who were not uh, superstars. Uh, They went to see superstars perform, but they weren't superstars themselves. I think John always carried himself like a, a member of his audience. Springsteen, too, was able to relate to his audience, but his gift was in creating these big choruses, these big refrains, these big, big songs. And... You know, by the time of, like, Born in the USA, the songs were blown so out of proportion that people didn't even understand what they were about. You know, Born in the USA was consistently misinterpreted as this, you know, grand patriotic song when it was uh, in many ways exactly the opposite. Prime songs had a lot of layers to them, uh, but I don't think there was any doubt about who he was singing to or who he was singing about. I mean, to me, it was startling for him, like an angel from Montgomery, to adopt uh, a woman's voice, you know, uh, one of his earliest songs, you know, early 70s. It wasn't a common common thing to do that. Not, I don't know if it's a common thing to even do that now, but, I mean, it, it was one of those things where he could relate to people like himself, male or female. It was, um, you know, that sense of empathy that came across in all his songs, and by extension... That empathy created a sense of intimacy and made the songs intimate. So he wasn't about creating these big sing along refrains, although, you know, uh, a song like Lake Marie, you know, certainly had its sing along aspects to it. But, you know, at the same time, there was a, a sense of he was writing about everyday people in the vernacular of everyday people.
0: You spoke to him a couple of years ago for Sound Opinions. What was the most memorable part of that conversation for you?
3: I probably interviewed Prine a dozen times over, over you know, 30 years. And, uh, you know, the the sound opinions interview, I, I felt like I'd heard every story. And, you know, of course, he, he, you know, he was never, as I said on stage, he he wasn't one of those guys who just kind of had a shtick. You know, it was always kind of in the moment. So whatever sort of popped into his head, he'd talk about. And, uh, you know, he told this story, uh, and I'd actually heard him tell it before about meeting Phil Spector, but it was just this surreal You know, story, you know, he he brought some details to it that I hadn't heard before. Uh, Meeting this surreal character in this surreal setting and like the just the oddity of John Prine meeting this, you know, sort of, um, you know, gigantic music figure who was sort of on the downslope of his career at that sort of very vulnerable moment. And the two lives sort of intersecting for one night and creating this memorable series of events. And, And Prine was just great. At telling those kind of stories that you could just imagine yourself sitting there, you know, over a few beers, hearing these stories over and over again. All you want to do is hear him talk and tell these stories because he was so entertaining. I mean, the guy could have been like, a, I don't know, a camp counselor or something or a preacher. <laughs> you know, he was just so mesmerizing. You didn't even need music. And then you go, well, no wonder this guy's such a great songwriter because he's so great at not only coming up with stories, but the, the vivid details that he was able to include in those stories uh, really made them just pop, made, made them live in your head for, for decades.
0: Well, we're going to go out on uh, a song you chose. It's one of John Prine's earliest songs. Sam Stone, really quickly, why this
3: song? Well, you know, there's a hole in Daddy's arm where all the money goes, you know, Jesus died for nothing, I suppose. You know, I mean, in those two lines just crush me every time. You know, he um, he talked about a guy returning from Vietnam, got hooked on heroin. He knew people like that, that just, you know, uh, their lives were destroyed by Vietnam. They, they may have come back in one piece, but they were really never the same. And this guy uh, became a heroin addict, and he just talked about this sense of hopelessness in this guy's life. And again, that sense of empathy, you know, a forgotten figure, he talked a lot about outsiders uh, people who were overlooked people that society didn't care about in his songs and that song to me is where where it all starts
2: he gave him all the confidence he with a purple heart and a monkey on his back Sweet songs never last too long on broken radios.
0: Mm-hmm. Greg Cott is the co host of WBEZ's Stand Sound Opinions. Song. To hear Greg and Jim's complete interview with John Prine, go to soundopinions.org. Greg, thanks for joining us and stay well.
3: Thank you, Jen. Same to you. And
2: Sammy took to stealing when he got that.
0: Feeling for a hundred And that's today's Reset. For the latest, most accurate news about the COVID-19 outbreak, keep your radio on 91.5 WBEZ or stream us at WBEZ.org. I'm Jen White. Please do your part to combat the virus by staying indoors as much as possible. Take care of yourself and your loved ones, and let's talk again soon.
2: There's a hole in Daddy's arm Where all the money goes Jesus Christ died for nothing I a Little pitchers have big ears Don't stop to count the years Sweet songs never last too long On broken radio Stone was alone When he popped his last balloon Climbing walls while sitting in a chair Well, he played his last request I build For flag draped Casket on a local Hero's hill There's a hole In daddy's arm Where all the money goes Jesus Christ Died for nothing I suppose Little pictures Have big ears.